to the Very Well Mind podcast. We've interviewed over 100 authors, experts, entrepreneurs, athletes, musicians, and others to help you learn strategies to care for your mental health. This episode is hosted by psychotherapist and best-selling author Amy Morin. Now let's get into the episode. My guest today is Melissa Bernstein, the co-founder of Melissa and Doug Toys. From wooden puzzles to pretend kitchen sets, you've likely seen some of her toys at some point. Well, Melissa's the person who designs all of those really fun toys. Melissa also has depression. She says she has existential depression, which she'll explain in more detail. Now she's written a new book called Lifelines, which describes her journey. Today, she talks about her lifelong battle with depression, how her depression affects her creativity, and the things she's found helpful to her mental health. Make sure to stick around until the end of the episode for the therapist take. This is the part of the show where I break down my guest's mental strength strategies and share how you can apply them to your own life. So here's Melissa Bernstein on how to be mentally strong when you're battling depression. Melissa Bernstein, welcome to the Very Well Mind podcast. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. So what people might not know when they hear the name Melissa Bernstein is that you're the same Melissa from Melissa and Doug Toys. That is true. Yes. And so, uh, so many people, as I was just telling you before, when I told people that you were going to be on my podcast and I said, Melissa from Melissa and Doug, so many people know, know you as the person who's made so many of the toys that are probably sitting in their living rooms or the toys that their kids have loved for so many years. But I understand that wasn't the start of your career. You didn't grow up thinking I'm going to be making a, a toy company someday. Instead, you were a financial analyst. Am I right? I mean, for a very, very brief time. Yes. But I think doing that was critical in my life story because it really showed me what happens to us when we don't do something that makes our heart sing. And I was so miserable in that very short period of that role that that was what really spurred on Doug and I sort of leaving conventional mainstream corporate America and really forging out on our own. And how did you guys come up with the idea to start a toy company? For people who don't know, Doug is your husband. And at the time you started the company, he was your boyfriend, right? Exactly. Oh, you know that. Yes. We had just been dating about three years, maybe even a little under. And we were both engaged in traditional roles right out of college. You know, he had gone into advertising and producing television commercials. And I had gone into investment banking, which I only did because it was so highly coveted. And I sought validation to such a degree that I wanted to get the hardest job to get out of college. And by the way, I never liked numbers. Numbers never spoke to me. They never like, you know, created beautiful music on the page. They were just boring old numbers. But still, I decided that's what I wanted to do. So we were in these careers. And I would say, you know, neither of us felt like they were our life calling. We didn't feel excited to get out of bed each day. And we didn't feel like we were making a difference in the world. So we started to really question what we were doing. And I even more than than he, because I was absolutely miserable. And I think I felt like I had a two-ton gorilla sitting on my back. 
because I could barely breathe. I was so unhappy and I didn't feel, I didn't enjoy what I was doing and I didn't feel respected and valued as a person in doing what I was doing. So I, it got to the point where I almost couldn't even force myself to get up and go to work. And that was when we knew we wanted to do something different. And uh, we very early on honed in on children because both of us loved children. All of our parents were somehow involved in education. And we knew if we could impact a child and do something that would ignite their imagination or allow them to play or find joy, then we would truly be giving to the world in a way that made us feel good. How much courage did it take to to take that leap to say, I'm going to quit this really secure job and start a toy company? Mm -hmm. So much courage because those were the days when you were a professional, you pursued a career that would last your lifetime. Like those weren't the days when the word startup was just like regular English. And we talked about unicorns and all these cool stories about people who just gave it all up to, to start a business. Like those were the days when you, you didn't think about doing something on your own and you just pursued one direct path. And people thought we were crazy, uh, especially, you know, leaving these solid careers that would have led to the pathway to conventional success. And of all things, starting a toy company, like who does that? So I think it took a lot of courage, but, you know, at some point you're just weighing two options, whether to, again, deny what makes your, your heart sing and buckle to convention or take a risk and try to find meaning and happiness and fulfillment and, and touch others. And we were both like, we're doing it. And, and by the way, I wouldn't have done it without Doug. I was definitely much more risk averse and terrified of taking the wrong path. You know, he really gave me the courage to, to leave what I had no joy in, but nonetheless, I might've stayed there if not for him. Uh, and and to really, you know, make that that leap with him. And what was your role in the company? What was your job? What did you do there? I mean, we, you know, for many years we both did everything. You know, it was a startup. So there were no, there were no formalized roles. But I would say it pretty quickly morphed into I created all the products and became really the the chief creative person. And Doug sort of did a combination. So you're designing the toys? Yes. Everyone, you're the one designing toys, coming up with it. How fun! Yeah, I was really um, the spark. You know, I've been the spark for every toy we've come out with. I have a, a team that brings it to life. So, I am not an engineer. I am not an industrial designer. I'm not an artist. I'm an idea person. So, uh, I get to work with these incredibly bright people to bring what's in here, and I see so clearly to something in tangible form. And that's got to be one of the reasons why your company was so successful. Your toys are so cool. Oh. Everybody thinks that your toys are fun. And so the fact that you're the idea machine behind this is absolutely amazing. Thank you. It was joyful. And it'd be great to say, well, then life was happily ever after. You left this career that you didn't want. You started a toy company. It turns out to be a huge success and you lived happily mm -hmm. ever after. However, you came out with a book called Lifelines because you wanted people to know that despite having this 
life that looked pretty amazing on the outside, you were still struggling on the inside. Yes, exactly. I think, you know, so much of my life has come full circle in connecting all these dots that at the time I never realized were these profound dots that were going to give my life meaning. But now I see it really clearly. And I think, you know, looking at my life now, I can truly say that although, you know, we have absolutely achieved conventional success in, we now have, you know, a half a billion dollar toy company uh, and sell, you know, probably 70 million toys a year. It didn't bring me that sense of worth and validation and inner peace that I so craved. And we can chase those things, you know, forever and attain that material success and still, and enjoy it. Don't get me wrong. I mean, it isn't that I haven't enjoyed material success and having everything I could ever imagine and more, but the reality is if you haven't filled the gaping hole within and really accepted yourself for who you are in everything you are, you know, your highs, your lows, your in-betweens, your quirks, you will never truly be at peace. And uh, that's taken me a long time to to realize, but I, I know it's true. And one of the things you talk about in your book is existential depression. Can you explain what that is to people who don't really understand what you mean by that? Absolutely. And by the way, I didn't even know what it was until about five years ago. That's how uh, what little known it is. And it's not even in the, the diagnostic in manual that, that talks about all afflictions. Existential depression is not even in it. That's how little known it is. So I was born with my type of depression, which is really crazy. It had no trigger. wasn't like something happened in my life and it was suddenly triggered. I was born with what I call a meaning crisis, a true profound crisis of meaning, whereby from the time I could even form words, I had these questions continually running through my head. Sort of these three questions, which were, you know, why am I here? What am I meant to do while I'm here? And what is the meaning of life if we are all ultimately just going to die and turn to dust? And those questions were so prevalent and so deep and so um, insistent on getting an answer. And yet I couldn't even voice the questions, much less get an answer from anyone around me. So I lived in utter terror. Because to me, the world seemed utterly absurd and meaningless. I couldn't understand why people were just racing around doing these ridiculous things that didn't seem to me to be of any worth or value. And I didn't feel that I had the ability to create meaning in my own life and find those answers. So that was when I was really at my darkest, when the nihilism, which is the sense that there's nothing, there's no meaning, and I can't make any meaning was the strongest. Those were the, the worst times um, until, you know, my, my, my story is, thank goodness, I was able to, to find the meaning. But I, I didn't for most of my, you know, like young life. How did you find out that's what it is, that it was existential depression? I'm a therapist. A lot of people come into my office saying, I'm going through this rough patch in my life, or I need medication. 
But nobody has ever come in saying, I have existential depression. Sometimes that's what it is, but they don't recognize it. How did you figure out that's what it was? If, it, if, you, couldn't, if you can believe it, it was just by accident. And that's what makes, like, to me, the story so remarkable because I never would have known if not for a few dots connecting. So I read a book that was recommended on a podcast I listened to by the host who said it was his favorite book, which is Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. And believe it or not, I had this book already in my bookshelf and had read it like in my 20s. But it's so crazy. And I write a lot of verses about this, how, you know, you can look at something at a point in your life when you're not ready for it and it doesn't speak to you, right? It doesn't say anything to you other than I'm an interesting book and look at it two decades later and have it be like the most revelatory thing you've ever seen in your life. So this, this, this person mentioned it so many times that I decided to reread it. And it's that book that really was the catalyst for changing my life because not even in the body of the book, at the end of the book, um, Frankel talks about after he got out of the concentration camp, he was in a concentration camp and had to find meaning within it. He began something that he called logotherapy, a form of existential analysis. And even though I had read the, the thesaurus for fun as a child, I had never heard the word existential and never heard the word logotherapy, ever. I mean, I had to look these up just like anybody would. And what I found truly changed my life because logotherapy, logo means meaning, and logotherapy is based on the contention that humans' ultimate motivation in life is the search for meaning. And that exists. And when I looked up existentialism and existential despair and existential angst, I saw with this, I call it shalation, shock inhalation, that that was exactly what had plagued me this whole life. And even more so, he contends that it's not pathological. It's not actually like an affliction that needs the traditional forms of of pharmacological aid, it's actually a philosophical affliction. And it's philosophy, which is exactly what happened to me, that ends up saving you. So I, I, that was the first dot that I, I absolutely had this tremendous existential anguish and depression that I had never understood. And then when I further looked at those who were afflicted with it, that was the next dot that was even bigger it was those who tend to be afflicted with it tend to be highly creative. And that is because they have these things called hypersensitivities, which are the fact that their central nervous systems are heightened to such a level that they can see and feel things that most people don't. And because of that, because of being able to see and ponder these higher realities, and feel so much more deeply the pain and the beauty of the world, we are able to forge that into creation almost effortlessly because it just flows through us uh, rampantly. And, And seeing that and realizing when I looked at these five hypersensitivities and their definitions, I didn't stop crying for about three days. Because for the first time in my entire life, I didn't feel alone. And for the first time in my life, I felt like 
are you kidding me? There are other people who also have felt this way and been this way. And that must mean that there's someone out there who understands me. So just knowing that you weren't alone, because you talk a lot in your book about feeling like you were sort of from another planet and thinking that everybody else experienced things in a different way than you did. So just having that information to know that other people were with you, was that enough to help lift you out of this in the beginning? It wasn't enough, but it was a really good start because it what it did, it did this incredible thing. I had never thought the fact that I can create from nothing and I've written verses, like I see them in my head complete and I've written music, I write musical compositions and it just, it just flows through me. It's my, it's my salvation and it's my way of making sense of this utter chaos that reigns freely through my head. Uh, it rages freely through my head and reigns, reigns supreme in my body. You know, I just thought, whatever, it's just who I am. I never thought about it as having, um, another side to it. And yet my whole life, I tried to destroy the very qualities that made me that way. You know, my ability to create comes out of deep eccentricities. You know, it comes out of like talking to myself and muttering to myself and living in my imagination and feeling so deeply that I wake up many mornings crying and I don't even know why. And, you know, being very dogmatic about what I believe because I see things so clearly in my head. And it's just, I have a very difficult, challenging personality. And I never thought it was anything other than what separated me from fitting in. And I wanted to kill it. I hated it. I hated myself. And when I was able to see that I had a blurse, it's another one I made up words, that my blessing was my curse, I was able to see myself in an entirely different light. So knowing that I was suffered from something that was very common among highly creative people, validated my entire experience and made me see that my creativity wasn't without its curse. And then once you had that information, what did you do with it? Oh my gosh, that's when I was off to the races. So once I saw it, I realized I had to share this because I knew if I was nearly 50 years old, and as, as educated as I was and as rabid for knowledge as I was, and I had never connected the dots, I never heard of these things, no one ever spoke about them to me, that I had to share it. Like, I'm about, like, knowledge and, and spreading that knowledge. So I decided I would go on that very podcast that told me about the existential despair in the first place through Viktor Frankl. And I, out of the blue contacted this guy. He had a really very well-known podcast with pretty much all my favorite people. And I basically just shared my story. And I said, I know this sounds strange, but I want to go on your podcast and bear my soul for the first time ever. Like I didn't even know I had this. No one in my life knows I have this, trust me. Uh, because my entire life, I built up this facade to avoid those feelings, which I was positive would submerge me and I'd never come out. So the only way I ended up uh, effectively existing through my life was denying, repressing, and disassociating from everything I felt and adopting a facade that became the real me. I mean, I thought it was me and everyone thought it was the real me uh, throughout my life to be incredibly high-functioning, you know, to have this company, to engage with my community, to have six children, really repressing it all. So I went on this podcast 
And I share the fact that I suffer from existential depression. I have these hypersensitivities and that my creativity became my salvation. The very thing I wanted to kill my whole life actually was my antidote. And I received, oh my goodness, hundreds of letters that were so powerful and profound. They were like, uh, I call them like, you know, golden dewdrops, sort of like falling from the heavens because there were so many people saying, guess what? I feel exactly the same as you. And I realized that there were so many of us who actually did feel the same. We were hiding our feelings from the world for fear of being stigmatized and rejected. But there was one difference. And that was the reason they all reached out to me. They said, you have found your pathway out of darkness. I haven't. And so many of them were wondering if they should hang on another day. And they wanted me to share with them the path that I had taken to channel that darkness into light. And that became really my my battle cry. You know, once I saw that there were so many afflicted people. And and what I did after that is I said, I'm going to respond to every single one of the people who responded to me, a few hundred of them with personal letters and also ask anyone who wants to speak with me to get on a phone call with me. And I spoke to, gosh, you know, scores of people. And those conversations were the most incredible of my life. Unlike anything, I mean, I had never gone out who I as who I truly was. And now I was talking to person after person who felt very similarly. And I was, you know, I'm not a professional, but in my sharing my experience way and what worked for me, being able to share with them how I helped myself. And, and that seemed to resonate with so many. So that really became this next chapter, uh, which is, you know, giving back and showing others that they're not alone. I can only imagine what that was like then to hear from so many other people who said, yeah, that story resonates with me after spending so many years of feeling like you were alone. And I can imagine for people listening to that podcast and for them to have that aha moment of, oh my gosh, other people feel like this too. Did anybody in your life know the people around you? It sounds like you kept it fairly well hidden. You looked like you were doing well on the outside, yet feeling this on the inside. Did people know about this before you stepped forward? No, because I didn't know about it. This is, I know, and people say to me, like, why didn't you get help? You you seem, you were so afflicted. And I was, but I was in denial of all of it. It was, it was truly unconsciously submerged to such a degree. No one in my family ever acknowledged it, even though, I, I mean, I was afflicted. I had terrible eating disorders my whole life and weighed 82 pounds at one point. Yet I convinced the world I was still fine, that I didn't need help. Like I was always a fighter and I always believed in my heart, even though I talk about it as this demon that wanted to, you know, submerge me, I fought against it with all my might. And, you know, I guess ended up prevailing. It wasn't healthy. I'm not saying, uh, but I wasn't, if you would ask me like, how are you at age 14? I would have been like, fine. Why are you asking me? even if I weighed 80 pounds, you know, or if you asked me at 18, how are you feeling? I would have been like, fine. Why? Do you, am I acting like something's wrong? I would have been really triggered and really angry. Um, and if you asked me at 40, how are you? I would have said, great. Like, why are you asking me? Um, because my whole 
mode was to triumph over the adversity, push it all down, and show one face to myself in the world, which was great. Because the truth was, I was so terrified by those feelings that were so overpowering. I mean, I can't even explain what existential nihilism is like. You are looking nothingness in the face with nothing to to fight it. And uh, it, it's, it's not a good place to be. So I had to fight it to survive, I believe, my life. Because many who are afflicted with certainly existential nihilism, which is the worst form of existential despair, many either inebriate themselves to such a degree that they're completely numbed from feeling or attempt or succeed in taking their lives. I mean, it is, it, and I was really close to that spot as well. So I had to submerge it to survive. Um, but ultimately, there are two parts of my healing. You know, one was when I saw that I actually could take the darkness and channel it into light through creating toys, which was just by accident. Again, another accident because sure, we decided to form a toy company, but I never knew I could design toys. I mean, I wasn't, I didn't ever take a design course in anything, much less toy design. And, you know, all I had ever created up until then were verses and music that were so dark that I never shared them with the world. I never had any creative piece come out into the world um, in my first two and a half decades because I didn't even connect to being a creative. In fact, I submerged it. It was only like I created out of the fact that it just channeled through me and I was like a victim, like get this dark stuff out of me. But I never saw myself as being able to create beautiful things that could touch other people. So when I started by accident realizing, wow, you can actually make toys and and you can take all that darkness and channel it into light, not darkness, and have it create something tangible that actually can impact a child and unleash their imagination. Like that was like breathing fresh air for the very first time. So that became part of my, that made sense of the world and sense is extrinsic. So I was able to say, okay, I can make sense now. I can see that I'm here because of my creativity and it can channel into toys. I still hadn't made meaning for myself because meaning is, I think, intrinsic. And that became the second half of the equation. So when I started connecting the dots, I went on the podcast. I realized this is who I am. I knew I had to engage in the hardest part, which was to make that journey inward because I was still looking out there for the validation. I was in this futile race, racing outside myself toward the answer, toward even my creativity. I was so fervently creating 200 products a year to make my legacy, to be my, my thwart against mortality, that I was just exhausted. And I still hadn't ever accepted who I truly was in all my darkness. I was still hiding who I was from the world. And I knew that unless I stopped this racing, which was starting to exhaust me, like I knew in my heart I couldn't race any further because it wasn't bringing me any closer to finding that meaning or fulfillment until I stopped, which was, by the way, the hardest thing I ever did. And, and then once I could actually stop and become present, go inward and truly go back to all that darkness and stare it in the eye and accept myself in the full spectrum of my emotions, I would never find fulfillment. 
And that was the first time I had to admit I'm flawed. I'm imperfect. I need help. And I sought out a therapist for the very first time, like four, a little over four years ago. And with her help, began to make this uh, inward journey, which I knew was going to be the hardest thing of my life. And lo and behold, it has been. (laughs) And how much better do you feel now? Is this always going to be an ongoing struggle for you? Something that you think you're going to be combating forever? It's a great question. And the best question. Uh, You know, I will be on this journey forever, but I am really happy to say I am no longer depressed in that way anymore. Uh, Once I truly went inward and stared the darkness in the eye, which was the hardest, it it took a few weeks, the hardest weeks of my life. And I didn't think I would make it out. I, I wanted, I was at my lowest point ever. And this was just a couple of years ago. I thought I had been at some lows, no, nothing lower than that. Uh, and, you know, it, it, it's, not, it's not something I recommend without a professional. And thank goodness I had this amazing therapist by my side who had been there herself. And it's only because she had gone and touched that darkness in her own life herself that she was able to sit there with me and say, I'm not leaving you. Because I was like, do not leave. Like, I will not make it out. Uh, and the great thing is, once I went there and touched it, it wasn't something I'd recommend doing often. And I, I've touched it a couple of times since, and they're all really low moments. But I realized I can do it. Like, I wasn't running from it anymore. And actually, the running from it was a lot more painful than actually going there. Because I went there pretty quickly. I ran from it my whole life. So, you know, 40 years of running, 50 years from running from it versus, you know, a few weeks of having to touch it. Like I, I would always take touching it if I, if I had the choice and I, and I knew now. So once I wasn't hiding it, submerging it, running from it anymore and accepted myself finally for who I was and could give myself empathy for being exactly who I am, my despair pretty much lifted, which is crazy because I did it completely on my own, you know, and um, and also used a lot of philosophy, which is my own route. Uh, but through the psychotherapy and the philosophy, I came to the point where I understand now, you know, the the, the meaning and what I have to do. And I uh, know that I'm not going to, you know, I can't say I'm happy because that's a very, I think that's like saying, be a perfectionist. You know, the, the the pursuit of happiness is, I think, the worst four words in our language because when you're striving for happiness, that's when you end up miserable and disappointed because it's not about happiness. It's about being everything and feeling everything and experiencing everything and knowing, yes, there's some days that, oh my gosh, I feel the the most profound elation ever. And I'm crying all day because I'm so blissfully happy. And and like, I just feel in communion with everyone and everything. And it's like this kumbaya of the cosmos. And other days I wake up and like I said, I wake up some mornings and I'm crying in my sleep and my pillow is wet and I don't even know why. You know, I, I it's just, I feel such sadness. And that whole day, I'm really sad. 
Like, but I don't, I don't avoid, I don't repress, I don't deny it anymore. My word now, which is part of my journey, is allow. And whatever I am feeling, I don't say, what the heck is wrong with you, Melissa? Why are you feeling that way today? You should, you have everything. I say, wow, Melissa, you woke up really sad. What's going on? Like, why are you feeling so sad? And usually I can't answer it because I really don't know. Sometimes it's a little bit of the, you know, existential despair sort of coming in and I have to, you know, actively say, get out of here. Um, But usually I'll say, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to take two walks because I'm having a really low day. And when I'm in nature, I, I can't feel sad, actually, truly. Like I become so grounded and I'm at such one with, with these beautiful pieces of nature that don't ups- aren't upset at their mort- mortality and don't say, ooh, I'm not looking good today. I don't have any leaves on me. Like nature just is. And it teaches me that I need to just be. So I engage my practice a little more wholeheartedly on those days. And before long, I realized that I'm kind of back to equanimous. You know, I'm not as as low as I woke up feeling. Uh, or I harness it and I say, wow, today's going to be a pretty creative day. You're going to write eight verses today because you are channeling something. And I do. It's those low days that I, I the verses just come into my head and I just write like a, like I'm a river. So, you know, I figure if it can lead to more creativity that can potentially touch someone else, then bring on the darkness. I'm glad you said all that because the pressure we often put on ourselves to be happy or the idea that you should chase happiness or if you're not happy, then people start to judge themselves like I should be happier. Mm -hmm. I can imagine here you are uh, with a really good life from the outside looking in. And maybe there was some judgment at times, like I should be happy. I'm not deserving of somebody who should be depressed. I should be feeling something different or to feel guilt about it. I run into a lot of people in my therapy office who experience those things. And it's really the judgments that they put on their lack of happiness in that moment that creates more misery. That is exactly what it is. And I think no one is immune to feeling despair. We're all the same. Whether I have more money than you or more, quote, conventional success, it it doesn't mean my feelings are any different than anyone else. We all judge ourselves. And sometimes when you have more, you judge yourself even harsher, like you said, because you feel like you don't deserve to feel sadness. We all are human. Humans feel humans are imperfect. And I think the thing I have to tell people the most now is to be human means being imperfect, means making mistakes, means feeling really dark feelings, means feeling jealousy. You know, when we talk in our, in our groups now for lifelines, we talk about feelings that no one wants to talk about. We talk about feeling jealous of people. We talk about feeling competitive. Like we all feel them, whether we want to deny it and put on the happy face, like, oh, I love everyone. We all feel those feelings. And the sooner we admit it and can share with others, I felt that too. Oh my gosh, you did too. The more we will be at peace and we won't, it won't be festering anymore. And the minute you take those feelings that you believe you can't share and you bring them to the light and you share, I'm human, I make mistakes, I feel, I get angry. The, the more they don't trigger us any further, the more they become just part of all of what we are and who we are. And I've had to learn that the hard way. 
Uh, but I'm really enjoying helping others to see that these feelings that they're submerging and repressing and denying are who they are. And if we deny and repress who we are, by definition, in my opinion, you will become depressed. And, you know, I wrote a little verse when I was just like probably nine years old. I wrote, resistance and repression dredge a channel to depression. Oh, that's good. And because it's what I was doing, you know? And um, so I think we have to actively begin to understand what we're doing to ourselves and that we don't deserve to punish ourselves. We're all we've got. And until we can truly accept and allow what we're feeling and embrace ourselves for being human and feeling these things, we will never be at peace. So that's what I'm encouraging all these folks I speak with. We pretty much all have the same issues. They all are feeling a certain way, which is not a, a, a way that they think society will uh, w- will accept. They're judging themselves for it and telling themselves, I shouldn't feel this way uh, and or feeling guilt for feeling this way and are depressed. And it's no wonder you're, you're, you're pretending you're someone you're not and you're denying who you truly are. So who wouldn't be depressed from that? And before we go, I want to make sure people know what resources you now have available. Not only did you write this book, Lifelines, but you also have a website. Yes. So I needed to write the book, Lifelines, to really share my vulnerability and truth with others so that they could feel confident doing the same. I really wanted to show folks that, you know, we all have a story and we all deserve to share it freely with the world. This wasn't meant to be a self-help book. It wasn't meant to give people the answers. It wasn't meant to say, oh, this is my cute life with a bunch of anecdotes about my kids and how I make toys and photos, which many people have asked me to do over the years. I did not want to do that because I don't even have the answers for myself, much less anyone else. And all I was trying to do was show myself authentically and give others the courage to do the same thing. However, Lifelines, the ecosystem, is much broader than that. It's still not giving the answers. In fact, our only promise we give is you are not alone. But the three core tenets of of the Lifelines ecosystem are the one I just said, number one, you are not alone. And it sounds very cliched, but if you know my story, it's not because how I felt through my entire life was utterly and completely alone and that no one would ever accept or understand who I was and truly love me for who I was. So we want to show anyone who's ever felt alone, bereft, stigmatized, that they don't fit in, that actually there is this community of real, authentic, warm people who will accept you with open arms. Two is that we all have the capability and power within to transform our darkness into light. Many of us don't think that. Many of us think we are doomed to darkness and will never come out of the despair we feel. But the truth is, we all have these beautiful sparks of self-expression in our soul. Every one of us is born with them. They don't come to us through our lives. We have them innately. And unfortunately, because society puts us in a box very early on and tells us, follow this path, don't follow the path of your soul, some of us never heed the cry of our soul and never truly go within and discover what it is that makes us tick. So we need to do that. And if we have the courage to 
you know, unshroud ourselves from all of society's pretensions and really look within, we will all see that we all have that beautiful gift that longs to reach freely and, you know, ignite a bonfire with humanity. So we are helping others to shine that inner light on themselves to find that. And then the third, which is the centerpiece of our whole ecosystem, is we will not find ultimate fulfillment or peace until we make that journey inward and accept ourselves in totality. And that is one of the hardest things to do because we're all looking for the answer outside ourselves. We're all looking for that quick fix and doing the work is really hard and really painful and not an immediate quick fix. I mean, I've been on the journey for four years and I'm just feeling like I'm coming up for air. So it's a true commitment to engaging in the act of self-discovery. And because my journey was so profound, I wanted to recreate it for our community. And our whole ecosystem is entirely free. You know, Doug and I are financing it through Melissa and Doug, and we would never say to people, you are not alone, and then charge them. Like, that would just be so um, pretentious and, and phony. So, you know, the journey, which is truly the one I took, and by the way, my incredible therapist helped me to make sure that it was therapeutically sound. So we got to work together as partners. Uh, you know, that really has in it the seeds to discover who you really are and what makes you tick. So I think um, the more folks that sort of decide they're ready to stop racing and make that journey inward, the 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 more chance they have at finding that sense of fulfillment that they've been seeking. We'll, we'll link to your book and to your website in our show notes so that hopefully people who are feeling this way can finally go connect with other people who can share those some same experiences. And hopefully like you, when they know that they're not the only one feeling that way, they'll start to feel better. Yeah, we already have a community. We're having some incredible events. We're doing a lot of uh, interactive events where we can all really share who we are. We had one this week on collaging. We had one on self-portraits last week. So next week we're doing like harmonizing. And this we're just at the beginning. You know, as we get more people um, on our team and really start, start building this incredible content, um, we'll have more and more engagement. And the other thing is anyone who wants to speak with me personally, if they email me at Melissa Bernstein at lifelines.com, I will absolutely respond to them personally. Uh, it is the, the most powerful and meaningful thing that I can do. Well, that is an amazing offer, the fact that you do that. And I can attest personally, when we were setting up this interview, you emailed me, me back every single time when we had a question or we started talking about it. So I have no doubt that you will. So thank you so much for doing that. Thank you for sharing your story and your wisdom and for sharing so many resources with other people who are struggling. Thank you so much for your podcast. I mean, you are helping so many people. So thank you for allowing me to, to share our mission on this. It really means the world to me. Absolutely. Welcome to The Therapist Take. Here's my take on some of Melissa's mental strength building strategies and how you can apply them to your own life. Number one, use creativity to make sense of chaos. Melissa said creating toys helped her make sense of the inner chaos that she feels on the inside. The toys she creates also give her meaning in her life. Melissa discovered that a lot of other creative people experience existential depression, and she immediately realized she wasn't alone. Creative outlets can do wonders for our mental health in so many ways. 
Researchers have discovered that creative outlets, which could include anything from writing and painting to growing plants and baking, can improve psychological well-being. Studies show doing something creative increases positive emotions, decreases depressive symptoms, decreases anxiety, reduces stress, and gives the immune system a much-needed boost. People report feeling happier on days when they do something creative. So make sure you have some kind of creative outlet in your life. If you don't currently have anything, experiment with some different activities and assess how it affects your mood. Number two, accept the full spectrum of emotions. Melissa said she was afraid to experience some of her less pleasant emotions. She was afraid that allowing herself to go to those dark places would be just too dark. But with the help of a therapist, she was able to feel those uncomfortable feelings. And she realized she didn't have to stay stuck in a dark place. Allowing yourself to feel uncomfortable is really hard, but it's important. I've had a lot of clients come into my therapy office and say something like, I don't dare let myself start crying because I'm afraid I'll never stop. But once they allow themselves to feel sad, they realize it's not as horrible as they imagined. And avoiding those uncomfortable feelings was actually making things worse. Number three, find your community. Melissa said she spent most of her life feeling like she was alone in her depression. She felt a lot better when she realized other people understood her. That's why she started her own online site called Lifelines. She wanted a place for people to go to learn about themselves and a place where they could connect with other people. Finding people who understand you is important. And while other people can't necessarily solve your problems, there's just something about knowing you're not alone that can go a long way toward helping you feel better. If you think you might have existential depression, check out Melissa's website, Lifelines. And if you struggle with something else, look for a community of people who can relate to what you're going through. Whether it's an online forum or an in-person support group, being able to talk to other people with similar experiences is essential. So those are three of Melissa's strategies that I highly recommend. Use creativity to make sense of the chaos, accept the full spectrum of emotions, and find your community. To hear more of Melissa's tips, pick up a copy of her book, Lifelines, and visit her website lifelines.com. Thank you for listening to the Very Well Mind podcast. If you found this episode informative, please share the episode with your friends and family and leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the Very Well Mind podcast, you can head to verywellmind.com slash podcasts.